0: Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fifth Wrist Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting things in the world of horology. My name is Roman, and today I'm joined by my friend and co-host Vinny from Tell Your Time. Hey, Vinny! Great to have you with us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Roman. So excited to be on your show. Um, Jump ship from the Defining Time show. So super excited for tonight.
0: Cracking into the big leagues. I love it. Oh yeah, it's our, <laughs> first, <laughs> our first show. It is our first show together. That's that's fine. All right, you know, double trouble.
1: Thanks, exactly. no, That's great.
0: Uh, No, super excited. We've got a great guest joining us today. Uh, Please welcome Nick Kenyon, Deputy Editor from the Australian Watch website Time and Tide. Hey, Nick, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Roman, and thank you, Vinny. It's great to be here. Uh, It's very exciting.
0: I can sense the energy pulsating in your voice. That's great.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's... uh... It's it's an intimidating start. Obviously, you've had a lot of fantastic guests on here before, so it's um an impossible act to follow. But um yeah, if if the readership goes through the floor, you'll or listenership goes through the floor, you'll know why.
0: I <laughs> oh, it won't be your fault, mate. We won't be able to ascribe it to you. I think we've been riding a wave, always oh, bound to crash sooner or later. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that, that that that's reassuring. <laughs>
0: Exactly, so yeah, welcome home. Uh, but look, uh, look, Nick, you'll be you'll be well known to our local Aussie sort of watch enthusiast crowd. But for our international listeners, maybe you can sort of give us a bit of an intro about yourself.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, as you mentioned, I'm the deputy editor at Time and Tide Watches. I've been there for just over twelve months now, and prior to that, I was working at a retailer uh, in Melbourne. A rookie still in the in the watch industry, kind of compared to compared to many of my colleagues, but very enthusiastic and yeah, absolutely loving loving it so far.
0: So, what sort of um, prompted the journey from you know working in a retail environment to kind of leaping into the watch media kind of thing? What was the spur for you?
2: So, I guess maybe backtrack a little bit. Uh, prior to working at the retailer, I was working in a job that I had been there for a couple of years, was enjoying it to a point, but knew that it wasn't my passion, um, and was spending most of my most of my time reading watch blogs anyway. So I kind of got to a point where I thought, imagine if I could do this all day and get paid for it. That would kind of be the ideal. So I then started to kind of have a think about the best way that I could, could do that, and um, and in, in, in the first step, it was starting working at a retailer. So I was working in recruitment and then I started working in a retailer in a in a similar role. And then after a while at the retailer, uh, there was an opportunity to start writing for them. Uh, the retailer was the Hourglass, um, so uh, Mike Tay's mm-hmm. branch in Australia. Um, so they have a, an online sort of... Presence where they they kind of write articles and um, one yeah, of my colleagues of was shooting a lot of watches yeah um, and then after writing for them for a little while I uh, was kind of in in touch with a few people from Time and Tide already and yeah then things kind of progressed and and here we are
1: so Nick something I wanted to I always like to ask those that have made the jump from I guess their previous life into the world of watches. Is, is that a hard choice to make or is that something that you're just like, no, nah, I, I love this too much. Um, I'm spending my days doing something I don't really enjoy. It makes it an easier decision. Um, or is there really sort of you're in two minds and you're like, well, what pushed you over the edge kind of thing?
2: It's a good question. I think I don't know. You in any in any job, you kind of always kind of wonder how how long you want to do it for, or, or what the future might hold. Um, and if you're in a specific industry where maybe that that future isn't particularly exciting, or there might be other opportunities that excite you more, then that was kind of what got me thinking in the first place. And then I thought, you know, what what's there to lose really if I if I jump ship out of a kind of big corporate office and Manage to get a a role, you know, covering watches or, or or working in the watch industry, then yeah, that'd be that'd be the dream. So, even if you know for whatever reason I, I do it and then realize that it's killed killed the passion for the hobby or I no longer enjoy it or anything like that, you know, it's always something I can always go go back into the to the other the other industry I was in in the past. But yeah, I just thought, why not? I'm kind of at a relatively early age in my career, regardless of what that would have been. So uh, it's not like I'm, you know, taking a a huge step down or anything like that. So it was, yeah, I, I didn't think there was much to lose and I thought there was a lot to gain.
1: Yeah, awesome
0: so you mentioned you were writing for the in-house publishing for the hourglass their own internal watch media yeah was writing about watches was writing about other things always a skill you knew you had or did you feel that you know you had to really work on it develop it and sharpen it so that it would translate into a career in watch media
2: no actually i i'd always loved i'd always i'd always loved writing um and yeah, it was actually, I'd studied communication at university anyway. Um, I majored in PR, then kind of got to the end of my university and realized that it wasn't kind of the, the path that I wanted to take, running events and mingling with D-class <laughs> celebrities. Um, so instead, yeah, kind of got, got started in, in recruitment. So yeah, I'd, I'd done a lot of writing in the past. Um, and yeah, if I hadn't studied communications, I, I potentially would have studied creative writing and one of my one of my majors at university in communications was literature and philosophy so i really enjoyed writing wow. and and reading so yeah it was it was a relatively natural step for all my years in re- recruitment or all my years 2 years in recruitment um my my family constantly reminded me that I'd wasted my degree, so it's good to finally have a have an outlet for it. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Um, the other thing I o- often wonder is the brave guys and girls who work in watch media. What was your level of knowledge prior to starting, and what was this learning curve like? You're in, needing to write about watches day in day out.
2: Yeah, totally. I think obviously it's a uh, well, I suppose you know you and uh, and Vinny can both kind of speak to that a bit in in your various capacities. But yeah, I was I was by no means an expert on on watches. I um I was really passionate about them and I was really interested in them. And I spent most of my waking hours thinking about them and reading about them and looking at photos on Instagram. Like I'm pretty sure most people do.
1: <laughs> yeah, sounds um, about
2: right. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, there's obviously a, a big step up on the on this the kind of level of detail that you have to cover, and then also just the kind of the media side. So I, I guess the biggest learning curve was working full time in media, which was not something that I'd done before. I'd, I'd done a few internships mm. um, and done you know a bit of writing here and there, but it was it was more the kind of media side of of the job um, that that was a bit of learning, and then the watches. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to to learn about something that you that you love and you're interested in. So I haven't found it too difficult. But again, I'm still by no means an expert. It's uh, it's what makes the the hobby so exciting. It's something that you're always learning in.
0: Mm. And the other thing I've sort of often wondered is a lot of people, certainly a lot of enthusiasts, kind of think slash daydream about turning their hobby into a job, you know, you sort of always hear that, oh, you know, if I wish I could do that for a job. But at the end of the day, you know, what you do is a job. So what do you think is the difference between, you know, being a watch enthusiast, in inverted commas, whatever that might mean for two people, versus doing this as a job slash career?
2: I think, well, I suppose one of the main differences is in media, especially, there's not much of an off switch. Um, especially in Australia, mm. where the time zones don't really work with us favorably, um, I remember in the when I was writing for the Hourglass, um, and you know, trying to trying to be across what was being released at at Basel World last year, and staying up until three or four o'clock in the morning, just trying to understand what's going on and understand the new releases. So, <laughs> working in media, there's kind of less of an off switch than I think most people would hope for in their in their jobs it's uh yeah it's a lot of kind of long hours or or strange hours getting up early to cover things or um staying up late to, to interview people in different time zones but i think in terms of the the difference between being an enthusiast and and working in it professionally I haven't lost any of the enthusiasm I I don't feel different um that's great other journalists do or or what their experience is um yeah I still literally dream about watches I still wake up (laughs) wanting to
1: (laughs) this is a safe space this is a safe space you can you can keep going that's fine
2: (laughs) yeah thank you (laughs) um so yeah, I think n- none of that kind of enthusiasm or curiosity has has diminished. Um, but yeah, I guess now I don't have to justify myself to my boss as to why I'm reading reading a watch blog instead of doing my doing my work <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's living the dream. I mean that's that that's great. I think if you can retain your passion, as you're saying, if you can retain your passion and then still be as, as enthusiastic. And still foster that your own interest and passion for learning. That's awesome. And I think having met you and interacted with you and in the many conversations you and I have had late in the night over negronis and other beverages, yeah, that very much translates, which I think yeah, your your passion for that sort of really shines through. Um having mentioned Negronis, I just realized we've totally bypassed the regular fifth wrist radio shtick that we should do, which is a wrist check.
2: Sacrilege.
0: Oh, it's I blame Vinny. That's he's he's just a negative influence.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I used to run a touch it. But anyway, let's do it now. We can always, you know, we'll we'll fix this in in, in, in editing anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we do some drink checks and wrist checks? All right, Vinny, why don't we let you go first?
1: All right, Roman. So I thought since I'm hopping on your show, I thought I would absolutely wear something that you love and
0: Don't even say it.
1: I've got my Rolex Explorer uh 2142701 um and I'm drinking a Guinness so cheers to Michael I know he he's a fan of the Guinness so that is me
2: good good pairing even if Romans <laughs> Romans picking him off himself off the floor
0: <laughs> sorry sorry I just I just had to yeah I just had to do a quick moment uh sorry pardon me uh, so now look it's it's on. Has any has anyone worn a Rolex on your show before, Raymond? Not with prior warning to me, because otherwise they usually don't get on. Uh, they don't pass the <laughs> mic check usually. Uh, no, uh, no, look, that's fine. No, no, that's totally fine. That's great. I, I, I had a feeling you'd. You've been into Guinness lately as well, have
1: Yeah, and it was a deal. So I thought it'd be rude not to scoop it up. Um, but I do love a stout. So win win. Beautiful, nice,
0: beautiful. What about you, Nick? Always keen to know what journalists are wearing these days. I am wearing. Uh, I think I got it the day before I saw
2: you last, Vinny. Uh, my Grand Seiko SBGW two three five, which hasn't left my wrist much for the last couple of uh, couple of weeks. How long have I had it? A month. Um, yeah, it, it's an unbelievable watch. it's Not much, not much else to say. Um, and I'm drinking in uh, uh, in in a nod to our previous booze sessions, Roman, uh, a Negroni, of course.
0: Mm, lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, that's great. Yeah, I mean, that, that Grand Saker you've, yeah it certainly features a lot on your Instagram and I know how much you've been sort of looking forward to getting it and, yeah, like the joy that you derive from it. It's awesome. It's purely infectious. That's, that's really good. Cause
1: you, you're after that one for a while, Nick, aren't you? I,
2: I guess as we kind of talk more about, about collecting, um, yeah, I've been I, – I think I first saw it a couple of years ago and was kind of blown away by it. And it hasn't really left my mind since. Um, and then, yeah, I kind of, kind of finally bit, bit the bullet, and um, yeah, or ordered it because it uh, had to come from Japan because um, it's a, a JDM reference. But yeah, it was, it was a bit nerve-wracking spending the most amount of money I'd, I'd spent on a watch thus far on a watch that I'd never seen in the metal. But um, it's uh, yeah, lived, lived up to the hype, <laughs> my own hype.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. No, it's such a cracking, cracking watch, and I, I do remember when I saw you um, like the day after you got it and smiling ear to ear. And so was I. I was just so happy that you that you got it. Um, such a pretty thing.
2: Yeah, thank you. What about you, Roman? What are you wearing slash drinking?
0: Um, so drinks wise, I've got my usual gin and tonic, Four Pillars Gin. Um, that's kind of seems to be my drinker choice for the podcasts. Um, I ran out of gin earlier, but I've, I've fully restocked. Nice. Uh, thanks to a local. Dan Murphy's. We've been trying to get as a as a sponsor, but they're not listening. Obviously, not watch fans. Those we'll just have to keep drinking. Um, so <laughs> that's the only. only option. <laughs> so. well, well, we'll do that anyway. We won't have to switch over to milk. and See <laughs> if we can get purer. Whoever makes milk to <laughs> come on board. <about. laughs> Alex with his white Russians should you know should really keep us going. Um, and on my wrist, I've actually got a, an independent watch on. I've got an Enordane nice. uh, model one. So Enordane's a little brand out of scotland um out of glasgow and the one they made me they made me a custom made in a yellow aussie gold dial so always always makes me smile that one very cool um yeah so that's 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 what i've got on Marist and a awesome. model one I'll, yeah I'll, it's, a, it's a good little piece i was actually
2: on their their site this afternoon um we've uh, got got a piece which features one of their watches coming out shortly and i was just having a look through their um Oh, awesome. The hammered Fumé dials, I've not kind of had a very close look at them before, but they're absolutely exceptional, especially for the kind of price point that they charge. It's, yeah, very, very impressive.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the Fumé dials they've got, yeah, unbelievable. One of the guys who've been on the podcast, uh, Benoit at Petit Second, he just got one. Um, yeah, yep. exceptional piece. Like, yeah, just the, the, he, I think he's got the blue Fumé dial. Yeah, just stunning. Uh, and and as you say, Nick, yeah, for the for the prices they charge, I think it's fifteen hundred pounds from memory, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, like unbelievable sort of work. And They're doing some really exciting stuff as well. So,
2: yeah, a thousand pounds for the for the non-fume enamel, which is still yeah remarkable.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And I think they're they're about to drop a couple of new models. Uh, I was ch- having a word with um Lewis, who's the guy behind the brand. Yeah. Um, I was actually having a chat with him recently. So, yeah, no, like they, they seem to be going sort of strength to strength and it was really exciting to watch them kind of grow and, you know, become more and more sort of well-known and yeah. really kind of they've done a few really cool collabs. I think they did one with Armory and one with a retailer in Scotland, I think James Porter and Son or something yep. like that. So, yeah, so they're like kind of really becoming, yeah, more and more known, which is really cool. And there's a – and it's kind of Melbourne seems to be like a little – outpost of an Yeah uh it sort of down you know in, in this sort of region because i know felix has one yeah. um our mate desi has one as well so yeah so it, it's great they really like yeah nice to see like good people doing cool stuff and succeeding and becoming better known so that's really really cool absolutely
1: there's a there's a few brands actually like that um comes to mind like an ordain is one you mentioned a few of the guys have them and then also Habering, you know, friends of the show. Well, they might as well be the, the amount of times we...
0: I've heard the brand.
1: Yeah, somewhere. So I think us. Oh,
0: Anthony might have mentioned them once. No, it's, I think Anthony mentioned it once.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the other one that comes to mind, Oxen Jr. There, there's pockets of just fandom for these watches and well-deserved. And it's great to see. Like we're so far away from the rest of the, the watchmaking world, but still. Here in Australia, we can still have such great communities for these watches. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I think
2: I think we punch above our weight generally um, per capita. Probably we are. Uh, yeah, there seem to be quite a lot of nice watches on on quite a lot of wrists around town.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I haven't sort of thought about it, but I guess I wonder if us being so far away kind of also allows us to kind of veer off into a slightly different collecting kind of direction maybe? I don't know.
2: Yeah. And I think Australians obviously love the underdog story. So we're probably attracted to maybe smaller brands naturally, you know, not not obviously including mm. your sacrilege Vinny of the of the golden crown. <laughs> They're
0: a plucky little upstart from Switzerland. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you guys have heard of them, but they yeah they're doing all right. They're doing okay at the moment. So mm, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> see if right the trend Well, continues.
0: what about your own sort of collecting, Nick? I'm sort of always always interested. You know, with you know, I'll, I'll I'll lump you into the insiders group. You know, always I'm always sort of curious what the actual insiders in the watch industry are collecting or dreaming about things like that because your exposure, presumably, to pieces would be broader than ours. What's your own collecting journey been like?
2: Very generous of you to lump me in with the insiders. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I guess the majority of my collection is pretty boringly focused, I suppose. Um, yeah, kind of being relatively young and only only working, you know, for uh, a few years, it's not an, uh, an endlessly deep pocket that I have. So most of the watches that I've collected are kind of focused on the affordable mm. side. And within that, I think the best value that I've found in terms of the, the breadth and depth of the offering is probably vintage Seiko. Um,
0: Interesting. I just think
2: that, you know, from 60s, 70s, 80s, they started to get kind of a bit funky in the 90s. Um, but, yeah, there's just such an incredible, incredible diversity um, of of pieces, and yeah, a lot of them are, in my opinion, pretty pretty underappreciated. I think in terms of how much they actually cost. So for you know only a few hundred dollars, you can get a new watch, and it's totally different, totally different to what anybody else has at the at the local get together. Um, and yeah, I just I just really like them.
1: Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, I've I've got my vintage King Seiko, and th- yeah. Like it, it's got all the the DNA of, I guess, Grand Seiko as we know it today, yep. um, but just like the sheer history and the the breadth of what you can get from vintage Seiko, from funky bullhead chronos to divers to dress pieces, um, it's some of it is has been tapped into, but a lot of it still hasn't, and it, like, it seems like every other day something pops up that I've just never seen, never come across, and I, it blows my mind.
2: Yeah, no, totally. I think. Yeah, I actually got stuck in a bit of a rabbit hole today um looking at mm. Stone Dial Seiko's from the kind of mid to late 70s. Um I've got one of them um with a Yes,
1: that's beautiful.
2: Yeah, I think it's a sardonic style, but again, I think the case of that watch is made of uh tungsten carbide. Wow. which is similar to what they make armor-piercing bullets out of um so it's incredibly you know with the zuratsu polishing that the seiko and grand seiko are known for combined with you know something that approaches diamond i think it's nine or nine and a half on on the hardness scale yeah wow um it's just an absolutely flawless surface that's almost impossible to scratch yeah i've got another piece with a similar case but i just think that yeah the the way that the way that watches come out of Japan is fascinating as well. Um, just the fact that they've been making watches, you know, at a kind of mass scale for maybe a century or so, um, and we're kind of doing a lot of importing prior to that. But within that time, you know, or within maybe half of that time, uh, when the when the chronometer trials and those sorts of things were happening, um, they were able to to get award-winning watches or or some of the most accurate watches in the world as well as the kind of most yeah interesting and and kind of unusual designs it's um yeah i just think it's it's absolutely fantastic that was actually one of my um my kind of first big watch purchases was another grand seiko um which uh you've potentially seen on my instagram before it's a the quartz gmt i think it's S, sbgn007 i think from memory And again i just kind of thought but i just think like for again for somebody who kind of doesn't have an unlimited budget and you have you know a few thousand dollars a few thousand dollars to play with you can kind of get something low to middle of the road from switzerland with an automatic movement um or literally one of the the best quartz movements in the world in terms of accuracy um, and a whole host of other things. So, yeah, a, a lot of my collection is uh, like potentially sacrilege, but, uh, yeah, I've got quite a lot of quartz watches as well.
0: Yeah, as, long as, they're, as long as they're not oyster quartz, you're welcome on this show, I tell you. <laughs> uh, no, what I was going to say is, you know, being a watch journalist and handling a fair number of watches day to day, as you do, you know, for reviews or, you know, all that. Does do you yeah. find that scratches the itch and kind of helps you filter out watches, you know, that are really not interesting or something that you thought might might have been interesting, but now you've handled it like you've scratched that itch? Or does it actually stimulate kind of more of a desire to want to acquire them down the line or something?
2: I think it's probably focused it. Right. Probably the former. I think the more watches that you see the more watches you realise, or the more, yeah, the kind of less. I don't know. I think I think when anybody first starts collecting, um, their first uh, their first reaction, you know, they they go on Instagram, and every time they go on Instagram, they see a new watch that they have to have or they have to own. It's, it's the you know whatever it is. It's it's super cool. They've mm. never seen anything like it. It's you know it's absolutely perfect in terms of what it is. Um, or at least I was. Um, but I think the more watches that you kind of see and hold and feel, the more you kind of get get to know more what what really interests you, um, and what kind of excites you. And I think, yeah, it's it's definitely to be honest, the list the list of, of desired watches is probably the mm. same, um, but it's probably the same length, but probably just more focused. Right. I, think. Okay. I think I think I know a lot more. Obviously, know a lot more, um, you know, in terms of, of di- literally just different watches. Um, so that that means that I kind of will want a percentage of those, but within uh, within within that, I think they're kind of quite focused. So yeah, I think qu- quartz is obviously a bit of a theme. Um, I'd really like one day uh, see if I could get one of those Citizen Calibre zero 0100s. Zero One Hundreds. Oh the, um, yeah,
0: they're awesome. Plus minus one
2: se- one oh, second. Nice. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. Bit of a quartz grail. I think. Unfortunately, I'm sorry, Roman. Oyster quartz is probably on there as well, just for kind of how how weird and wonderful they are. I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so, and you've just tuned into the Rolex show with oh, Nick and Vinny. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: I'll second that. It's a cool watch, the Oyster Quartz, and so unloved for so long. Yeah, um, it's it's good they're getting they're getting recognised as you know a cool a cool piece. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, and then I think yeah one one of the one of the people that came to mind when I mentioned the um, illustrious list of uh, of people that have come on the show before me was Ronnie mm. Um I think design kind of yeah is is a very strong driver in my collection as well um I think yeah if if it kind of has a a weird or or wonderful design um that kind of speaks to me um and likewise kind of almost to the opposite if it's so plain and kind of restrained I think there's a an incredibly an incredible beauty in those pieces as well um I think if you told me five years ago that that I'd be this excited about getting this incredibly plain, time-only Grand Seiko with absolutely nothing on the dial. We um, <laughs> would have laughed at you because it, to, to anybody on the street, it looks like an incredibly boring watch. I um, just think the design is so, so refined and so kind of elegantly proportioned that it's yeah. It, it it's it's a very hard thing to do, surprisingly, making a, a good a good time only watch. Um, and when you see one, I think it uh, yeah, it it it's what it's what I love about this watch.
1: I think a lot of collectors share that that same sentiment though, because how many times have we heard that once you get deep into the hobby or you've been into watches for a long time, you, you start to go away from the more complicated or busy pieces and you just start looking for these pure expressions of of what a watch is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah, and that, I mean certainly that's that's certainly been true in my uh in my collecting. So when I started getting into watches, yeah, originally it was all you know, what's the most complicated watch I can get for my money? You know, just because I was just so dazzled by all the things that you know, all the little buttons and subdials and things that watches can do. And then you're right as you get more assured in kind of understanding the horology and things, you're right, you you tend to go towards the refined or, yeah, simple. And as Nick, you were saying, the hardest watch to make well and to make interesting is a watch that is just two or three-hander, right? Because you have to get everything perfect because otherwise it's just like every other watch on the market.
2: Yeah. I think it's like that quote, um, perfection is not when there's nothing left to add but when there's nothing left to take away. I think that kind of, yeah, I, I think of that quote a lot when I look at watches that are kind of incredibly reserved or incredibly refined um yeah i think it's it's a very hard thing to do lots of brands kind of try their hand at it and don't always succeed but i think when when a watch works it it just works just in terms of the from a from a kind of design perspective um i'm I'm no watchmaker or engineer um Mm. I don't know. I, I think to a degree as well. I've got, yeah, I've kind of got a an idea of the the perfect watch, or like you know, in, in this collecting journey that we're all on, we're all kind of
0: the platonic thing, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah, we're all we're all looking for for the one watch. You know, I think the the more watches that we see, or the more watches that we want, um, the more deep down we kind of desire. Just that one watch, that one perfect watch, that we don't have to exhaust ourselves scrolling through Instagram until we fall asleep <laughs> on the couch, or, or whatever whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and I think for for a watch to qualify for it for me at least, um, for a watch to qualify as as being potentially one of these one watches, um, I think it has to look like a nice watch to somebody who knows nothing about watches and somebody who knows everything about watches or, or is incredibly educated or, or deep in the community. You know, if, if you look at some of the most desirable independent watches, like the, the Dufour Simplicity um, or, or, you know, work by your favorite Roger Smith or, or George mm. Daniels there, they're incredibly yeah. simple watches, but, uh, somebody on the street would would instantly be able to tell that that is special. and similarly somebody who has read every watch book under the sun and every article on the internet will also know that that's an incredibly special watch. so I think you kind of need need both of those things for a watch to be special.
0: yeah, that's that's such a such a good point you make. Um, I often think of the classic watch for me in the watches you you would encounter would be something like an F Pigeon chronometric blue. yeah very refined, but everything about that watch is perfect, as you say, to the enthusiast who yeah. immediately understands versus somebody who will go, oh, that's a nice watch. And and if you show to them and yeah. they get to flip it over and they see that movement and it just blows their mind every time. So, yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, it's funny that you mentioned yeah. Ronnie Madvani, who we had on the show, because sometimes some of the watches that you post on your Instagram, either yours or things that you pull up from other people, often reminds me of his stuff because you've posted yourself some really quirky Seiko's or, you know, other brands. And, you know, you have an eye. I mean, you do have a particular style that you go for, uh, and is, which is quite distinctive as well. So not exa- not the same as Ronnie's, but sort of in that similar vibe, I could definitely tell that design is something that, you know, that you you think about in watches because it really comes through some of the stuff that you you like.
2: From a, from a technical standpoint, um, I mean, I, I can be, I'm obviously impressed by independent watchmakers and I, I, I am impressed because I don't understand how they do what they do. I think it's kind of, it's so complex that it's kind of beyond my capacity.
0: Yeah. It's abstract. It's beautiful in an abstract way. Yep. I get totally get that. Exactly.
2: It's, it's like listening to, you know, Brian Cox talk about the universe or, you know, what how, why the universe is?
0: Yep, you just nod and absorb. Yeah, it,
2: yeah. It, it, it's kind of information that is absolutely fascinating and incredibly interesting, but not something that you are able to, uh, kind of, you know, break down in a way. I guess I, I, I you know, can't pour over a, a, a manual on on how to build a twenty-eight twenty-four and understand. You know exactly exactly how the cogs kind of fit together. Um, but so I think from from that perspective, design is where I kind of gravitate towards. I think it's yeah it's 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 much more accessible from from my side at least because you kind of don't don't need as much of that technical training or technical background. Yeah, I I think it's just what makes makes watches obviously interesting. Um, you know, I think. If, if somebody looks at your wrist and they see kind of some slightly strange you know there's a, a few different elements that they maybe haven't seen before then that kind of will spark their attention potentially slightly more than than a, a deadbeat seconds or something like that where they might just think it's a quartz watch or or whatever so I think yeah that that's probably what what it what attracts me
1: well yeah I mean watches are this beautiful meeting point between art engineering culture I think you don't have to be an expert in all three. You can just follow what path you like or what appeals to you or what you get more. And the hobby is endless, like in the enjoyment in the enjoyment side of things, because you can just pick any avenue of watches that you like. And it's perfectly fine if you don't understand how perpetual calendar works or why Silicon Hairspring is better for a movement. Like it can, it can be beside the point because you can just enjoy these things for whatever else reason you want to.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I remember having a having somebody explain a, um, the constant force uh, escapement. I think it was in the Gérard Perregaux. Um and absolutely fascinating. Obviously, beautiful to just watch it tick, but it 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 has less of a kind of personal attraction compared to something like Markovsky-cased Patek Philippe that was carved from a solid block of gold and has kind of scroll lugs or whatever it might be, um, you might see in, in somebody like Ronnie's section. I think mm. that's just kind of clearly and mm. indisputably in a way a remarkable object from, from, my, from my perspective at least.
0: Mm. And, and well, let me then ask you this. What was the last watch that you can think of that surprised you or at least challenge your preconceived idea of what it was going to be like, and then you got it in your hand and went, Oh, yeah, wow. You know, of the let's say modern watches that you've handled recently, probably
2: most recently would be the Bulgari Octo Finissimo Chronograph GMT.
0: Yeah, wow.
2: Yeah, what a watch! Mind blowing. It like you see the photos and you get like it's thin, but like you hold it in your hands, you feel how light it is, you see yeah you just see the profile of it, and it is undeniably an incredible an incredible watch. I think yeah, I think I think the the Bulgari Octo octofinismo line generally is is pretty underrated. i think in in terms of really new and different designs that aren't just, you know, Submariner rip-offs or Patek, Nautiluses or Royal Oak. Um, <laughs> I think the, the Bulgari Octo Finissimo is one of the only genuinely different while also being well-executed designs of the last, yeah, decade, I guess.
1: Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think it, it'll reach icon status if it hasn't already. Um, if you described a sport watch with an integrated bracelet design um, yep. to someone... I think everyone would roll their eyes right about now. Um, but they're so distinctly different and as an object, like you said, it it's just amazing. And holding it in your hand, you just the the facets, the the edges, it's um yeah, it's just a great thing yeah. to behold. And, and I think yeah. the, the Totally agree.
2: Oh, I was just gonna say, um to that point, the the way that they are I think quite cleverly, slowly diversifying the design across different materials and different complications. Um, I think is really clever, but the fact that the design still works—it's a tourbillon, or a minute repeater, or a chronograph, or just a time-only watch—yeah, just kind of goes to show that it's 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 not your average 21st-century design.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. I remember Time and Tide—you uh, guys hosted a Bulgari event a couple of years ago, I think, just when the 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 first uh, Octaphinissima came out in titanium. And I remember going to that um, at, at at the event that you guys hosted, and yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, that watch was incredible. Four years ago, maybe I can't remember.
2: I know 2016 or 2017, I think was the the first.
0: Yeah, it would have been. That's right. And I remember trying on that watch and just yeah, being it was so different, yet so awesome. It was you know it was one of those things where you kind of go like everything about this watch yeah. is just about perfect, you know, including the bracelet. And the bracelet really blew me away.
2: Yeah, it it the bracelet specifically I think like it's it's surprisingly hard to make a good bracelet. Um I think people don't necessarily realize that. Sure. I think in terms of the the difference in the finishing or the difference in the tolerances of the machines that we use to to kind of mill the bracelet. Yeah, there are kind of leagues between a good bracelet and a bad bracelet and the Bul- Bulgari Octo Finissimo is incredibly well executed.
0: Yeah, and having that watch on a bracelet as opposed to the croc crocodile strap really changes the the watch because I got to try it on both. You know, it's miles more impressive on the bracelet, just as a whole package kind of piece. Yeah, it's incredible.
2: Yeah, well, oh, I think and, and I think that's why it's such a a remarkable design is you almost it, it, it looks like one piece. It looks like a cuff. It doesn't look like it's a bracelet and a watch. Um, in the same way that you know an integrated bracelet on a I don't know e- even a Royal Oak, you can kind of tell tell that it's a, a it's clearly a bracelet. But I think yeah for for the for the Bulgari Octo Finissimo, it's so kind of coherently one piece that yeah it 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 almost doesn't make sense on anything other than the bracelet.
0: Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think another brand I know you're quite fond of is Cartier. Is that a fair fair comment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um I have a little uh little Cartier, I think from kind of the 90s. Yeah, classic.
0: Um, classic. From their wild era,
2: from yeah, from from the uh from the from the wild era where it was
0: Yeah, mistakes were made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they,
2: they they finally pulled the reins in when they were doing kind of I don't know. Cartier takeaway coffee cups or something, Master Cartier. <laughs> um, no, they. Yeah, it, I. I think Cartier is another example of yeah my kind of interest in in design. I think yeah the Cartier Tank is almost like it. It's it's pretty close to a perfect watch. I think um, it is so balanced. It would not kind of be the same watch without the, without the exploded Roman numerals um, without the kind of sword hands and, you know, across the brand, I think they have such a, an incredible history of, of design as their kind of core focus. And I think that, that, you know, obviously Muster think of it what you will, but I think the, the kind of one of the, one of the drivers behind it was to create everyday objects that were kind of beautifully designed if it was. Sunglasses, or wallets, or pens, or you know, perfume bottles, or whatever it was. Um, they're all they're all beautiful objects in and of themselves. You know, regardless of the slightly less less less
0: controlled business model, maybe. Yeah, that's true. That's a fair comment. I mean, I think uh, I know you've recently read that book, the same book that I read by um, Francesca cartier Briquel the Cartiers, and yeah. that is very much a recurring theme throughout. The history of Cartiers—they knew when to make objects that were in the lower price bracket to attract more customers into the brand, but they always had that, you know, dedication to even if it's cheaper, even if it's a letter opener or a cigarette case or whatever, it has to be perfect. It has to be as desirable as a Cartier necklace for a hundred thousand dollars. That's, you know, potentially not in the same shop, but. It would be a stepping stone to, you know, for a customer to buy a cheaper thing or a keyring or whatever it is. It has to be perfect. It has to be desirable, so that you then step that customer into a more expensive purchase. So yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, and and I think I think they still did did a did a good job of kind of protecting the the integrity of the brand or the kind of the the reputation in terms of their. Their jewelry making, or watchmaking, or, or craftsmanship more generally, um, with the the incredibly kind of complex pieces that came out at a similar time. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's, yeah, as you say, cigarette cases for five hundred bucks, but then they're also doing, yeah, mis- mystery watches with with hands that don't appear to touch anything. Yeah, um, that's amazing. For yeah. hundreds of thousands, it's, um, yeah. No, I think I think the. The diversity within within Cartier's offering is also very attractive.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other watch I was going to specifically ask you about, because you're one of the few people who actually handled it, was the um, was the Doxa Diver in with a carbon case? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I think you did a well, – there was a photo shoot on Time and Tide, I think, where you, it was on the coldest day of the year or something. You had to don a wetsuit and <laughs> do some sea trials. <laughs>
2: yeah, it, it, was, it was fresh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that – that watch is, I think. I think if you look at Doxa as a brand, they kind of have the core DNA of the sort of tonneau-shaped case with with mm. no lugs, um, the the kind of um, steel steel bezel, the the kind of very legible legible dial that's kind of got that slight sector effect to it. But I think that you know inevitably, and I think you know this is a struggle that a lot of bra- uh, a lot of brands face. You can't kind of just keep flogging the classics. Um, there has to be forward forward progress. And I think that carbon doxa is exactly what that is. It's a full full carbon case, full carbon dial. Um, it's on a rubber strap. There's a titanium shell that, that kind of protects the movement. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's a pretty impressive watch. Again, I think... From a value perspective, which is kind of sort of how I try to look at these sorts of things, you know, what what are, what are comparable watches um, that use similar materials or, or similar movements or similar designs even, there's nothing really that similar to it. I don't think there's many brands that are using carbon for the case fully. Um, mm. So I think for the price point that it was, it was a genuine luxury performance sports watch
1: even then it's it's like what what watch has that much x factor about it at that price point like there there is something that will raise your hairs on the back of your neck seeing that watch like there's just so much cool about it like yeah i mean doxa took it to yeah. the absolute next level with that one um
2: yeah totally i think they've um yeah it, it, it's 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 important not to kind of alienate the kind of loyal enthusiast customer base by just making crazy new things and I think the the carbon execution is a kind of uh, a very well-walked tightrope between past and present, I'm oh, sorry, between past and, and future where they're kind of yeah, obviously using modern and, 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 and innovative materials within the space um, but still kind of maintaining that that case shape and the kind of dial layout that that everybody knows and loves them for
0: yeah, it looked, it looked pretty cool. I must say, yeah, I, I never got to handle that watch, but that looked pretty, pretty awesome, certainly on your wrist. Um, actually, we, we, while we were talking about, you know, you diving into the ocean on the coldest day of the year for a watch, uh, what shoot, what's a day in the life of a watch journalist like? Is it all jet-setting with celebrities? Is it all, you know, dinner jackets and all that? Obviously not at the moment, but, you know, give us a day in the life. um.
2: It is fantastic. It's, yeah, it's the best job, honestly. It's, um, rubbing it in now. <laughs> as I said, I get to think about watches all day. I get to read about watches all day. I get to write about watches all day. Um, you know, obviously, there's, there's kind of challenges within that, kind of, uh, as you'd find in, in any job. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's such a sort of special industry in a way, in, in terms of the way that it, it, intersects with its kind of the the community the community base um or the kind of you know the clients of the watch brands who are so engaged um you know if you if you make a mistake on an article you're going to get you're going to somebody's going to let you know about it
0: you'll hear about
2: it pretty, pretty quickly <laughs> um so yeah i think it yeah it, it, it's a fantastic job yeah it, before covid obviously um it was very exciting being able to go to different sorts of events I was lucky enough to go to Dubai Watch Week in November last year, nice. um, which was probably a lifetime highlight at this point. Um, wow! You know, it's twenty twenty-six, so we uh, we've got a bit we've got a bit to go. Hopefully, um, but yeah,
1: I, I remember seeing you on on that trip, like bags ready at the airport, and then you know you're in Dubai, you're looking at watches. Thought, is, it, is this really a day in the life? Is this really what it's like? Is it really that good? Because I'm sitting at home or in my office going, hmm, that must be nice being at Dubai Watch Week, just chatting with all sorts of interesting people, looking at all sorts of watches, and, you know, it's all work-related.
2: Yeah, and, you know, it's 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 an incredible kind of privilege to be able to go to somewhere like Dubai and, and meet all of these people that I'd kind of seen on youtube and read their articles and kind of just unbelievably excited to to meet yeah i I met uh aldous hodge there for the first time who time and tide have done uh, a bit of work with um Hmm. i met uh jeff kingston which um is a a niche reference uh potentially for some but he's uh uh, yeah of you're kind of very familiar with his legend he he is an absolute living legend um and was just kind of, yeah. Was just almost pinching myself that I was sitting sitting on a seat behind, beside um, beside him, and yeah, knew that knew that I didn't have uh, long on the bus before we got back to the hotel. So you know, after a quick shake of the hand and you know, this is my name. What's your name? Instantly asked him. So what happened with Walter deaths? <laughs> Um, But just yes. having having yeah. Uh, being in the same rooms as those sorts of people um, sitting across across the table for for lunch one day with um, with James Dowling kind of talking, talking his ear off and probably yeah. asking him too many questions and, and annoying him. But yeah, it, it, it it, it was an amazing experience, but yeah, it's definitely not uh, the majority of how I spend my waking
0: hours, uh, <laughs> let, let me tell you. <laughs> no. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I was feeling too jealous of you, so this is good. This is good. This is good for my mental health. Yeah, it'd be nice if it was a
2: once, once a week sort of uh, uh, you know trip trip across, but um, no, it's, yeah, obviously there's kind of the, the more day-to-day things, but yeah. Um, yeah if you're interested in watches and and you're kind of excited excited by them those sorts of events are just kind of indescribably exciting no no, nobody understands who doesn't care about watches why they're so exciting or why at least from my perspective they're so interesting um yeah it was it was fantastic
0: And what's the, um, I mean, I've never done Buzzle World and obviously I will never get a chance to now and maybe we'll get into that in a sec. Mm. Uh, What's the vibe like when you are rubbing shoulders with kind of the watch media crews from other publications or other websites or whatever? Is it kind of you know, is, it, is there camaraderie like we're all this sort of crazy pirate crew that just get to do this for a living, or is it kind of much more adversarial like everyone's after a scoop and there's sort of more, you know, elbowing one another in the ribs kind of thing. And you don't have to tell us who the assholes are, but we can probably guess. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, this is the bit where I get extorted. No, no it's, yeah, it's exactly. Um, no.
0: We'll bleep the name. So that is, just go for it. No, I was just I was genuinely curious. Genuinely curious. No, 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 no,
2: no, no, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's difficult for me to say, not because I don't want to say, it, but because I've never been to Baselworld. World. Um, i yeah kind of joined time and tide just after basel world um last year and then obviously this year it didn't happen and now it's not going to um so in that in that way it's kind of it's a bit sad i think to kind of join an industry that the kind of big big sort of events are in their kind of twilight Mm. years you kind of don't You don't really get to understand what a lot of the the other kind of your other colleagues at different publications talk about um, when they talk about, you know, what, how how impressive hall number one was when you walk in on the first day. And um, so, yeah, I I think I'm a bit kind of envious that I I just missed that. Um, But at the same time, I'm excited to kind of see what happens. Um, And I think that formats like Dubai Watch Week, where it's less about releases and more about kind of um, community potentially going to be a bit more viable moving forwards um, but yeah my, my experience at Dubai Watch Week was unbelievably positive um, that everybody was incredibly welcoming from every different publication everybody was more than happy to sit sit next to you and chat all day about whatever yeah it, it, it was not kind of hostile or, or adversarial at all considering that I had been working at Time and Tide for, I think, five months at that point, um, had never met any of these people, went there by myself, Right. literally didn't know a single person there yeah, apart from – actually, no, I had met Al- I Aldous Hodge once, but he was literally the only person that I had ever laid eyes on. So,
0: so you went in as friend of a celebrity. No, nice, nice. You just cruise in.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> no. Ontarians.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, he was um, – yeah, he's an amazing man, and he's, he had his family there. He had his mother and sister. Wow. Um, so I spent a bit of time with them. They were, they were fantastic. Um, but, yeah, in the context of not really knowing many people or, or kind of having, having had that much contact with, with a lot of these people, um, everybody was incredibly welcoming. It wasn't, um, yeah, adversarial at all.
0: Wow, which is lovely. I mean, that's quite reassuring, you know, in just from a human perspective, knowing that there's actually genuinely nice people doing the work in the industry. That that actually makes me feel much better. Um, I was actually going to ask you about kind of the pre-COVID versus post-COVID watch media world. Now, how are you finding the kind of the current, you know, we can't get together, there's, the events are all virtual. How has that affected your work, do you think?
2: i've been doing a lot of zoom calls <laughs> i think that that's probably
0: <laughs> <it>.
2: <laughs> yeah I, I think i think in terms of the old sort of traditional formats of of Barza world and then sihh um, split off of that they were still kind of effectively as i understand it a, a trade show platform mm. so it was kind of uh a business environment people would go there retailers would go there to make orders uh, watch brands would go there to to meet their to meet their retailers or, or their kind of clients um, and it was very much focused on the retail side of things mm-hmm. um, I think my experience at Dubai Watch Week was that it was less of a trade show and more of a conference um, more of a kind of Sharing ideas, where what's the kind of state of the industry? Um, you know, open panels, lots of right. discussions, debates, yeah. sorts of things, um, as opposed to a kind of specifically commercial, commercial angle for for its existence. Yeah, um, I think that has much more of a future moving forwards because I think, you know, listening to um, uh, my colleagues from other publications writing and and talking about um, about the value in Basel World and why it's it's sad that it's gone is that there still needs to be some way for the whole watch community to get together. Yes. So I think if if there's a an angle such as Dubai Watch Week um, that that can kind of be achieved, then I think that will. Um, that will yeah definitely have have more of a viable future um i think from from the media perspective it yeah it's 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 all on the majority of it's online anyway um you Mm. know i think covid has disrupted things a little bit it's um you know there's there's only a certain number of press pieces that get that get made for example that then kind of tour the world and um australia isn't always the the top top priority market so sometimes it's a little bit difficult getting access to to those sorts of things for shooting or or whatever Mm. it might be but the majority of the time it's still quite easy to be able to to get access to the pieces that you want to shoot them um and if you're not able to get access then the brand the brands are kind of much more aware of their online presence these days anyway so they often have you know great great photos and, and videos that they've created themselves um so I think, in terms of the the coverage side of things, um, it the show will kind of roll on post COVID as it has uh, as it has pre COVID.
0: Yeah, I think if anything, COVID's probably escalated the actual inevitable demise of the old way. I think you know it probably just escalated where the industry was going to go. Um, yeah. I was sort of going to ask you about what do you think will happen. I mean, Australia is a fairly small market. Do you think the future for enthusiasts here would be more smaller intimate events with brands and a media partner like you guys for example or someone else hosting in a smaller focused community gatherings if you like to kind of disseminate information because i think purely online seems a bit sterile so i think you still want some kind Mm -hmm. of you know tangible product in hand or an opportunity for people to meet and interact do you think that's kind of do you envisage that once we come out of lockdown, you know, in 2026, you know, the, the survivors will get yeah. to handle some watches, in, you know, in, in that kind of environment?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, again, you know, speaking with the experience that I've got, but from what I understand, events have, have always kind of played a, an important part in the way that that brands and media um, interact with the community um and i think that that will definitely continue it's um yeah as you say it it might be the only opportunity that you get to actually handle handle some of these watches um you know they they might be very you know they might be long wait lists or they might just be kind of uh you know not 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 that much allocation for australia you know Mm. uh so i think that that will definitely continue um and i think yeah, I think as far as markets, Australia isn't the largest market, but I also think that Australia is growing. Um, I think if you look at the amount of money that brands and retailers are investing in bricks and mortar over the last twelve months, even maybe twenty-four months. Yeah, Vinnie, if if or yeah, if you walk down Collins Street, you know there's that many new boutiques that are opening up um in melbourne if you if you do something similar in sydney there's a lot of new boutiques um so i think yeah there's definitely uh an enthusiastic optimism i think for for australia as a market um so hopefully that will kind of mean that yeah maybe we get we get more pieces or we get uh we get more access as well um but yeah i i think it's an interesting it's an interesting spot at the moment
1: yeah, I think Australia is growing in in terms of like our community base, but also brands are cottoning onto it too. Um, we, we're kind of, yeah, we're kind of an underdog compared to the rest of the world in terms of watches, you know, sold and units delivered. Um, but, you know, we're getting there. Yeah. Um, we, start, we are so far away from everyone else, so it doesn't help. But we, it's, yeah, yeah it, it is interesting, really interesting to see the amount of brick-and-mortar stores popping up in Melbourne. I honestly can't believe it. Um, and it'd be interesting if they stick around.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, even um, even from a, a kind of a more specific or more niche collector, I think Australia punches unbelievably well for its weight as well. I think the, the influence of basically the hourglass, really, I think uh, Mike Tay has done a fantastic job of fostering um, watch or the kind of interest in horology from an education standpoint. Um, I think if you look at like Lang- Langer Nation, um, the majority or, or at least a lot of the the members in that are based in Australia. Um, I think the first Recepi chronometers were delivered to Australia.
0: Yeah, the first two. Yep. to The boys in Sydney. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. In, in terms, yeah, in, in terms of the, um, the kind of most desirable uh, watches from independents, uh, a surprising number of them come to Australia as well. I think a lot of people are surprised by how, yeah, how, how much interest there is coming from Australian enthusiasts and Australian collectors. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, just as, as those kind of smaller independent brands are realising that, obviously the, the, the bigger brands are realising that as well.
0: I mean, um, yeah, in my experience has been as well with the local collectors. The level of knowledge seems relatively high, or the level of interest in learning about watches seems relatively high. You know, certainly at least the people that I interact with, uh, and it possibly could be a self-selecting yeah. set. But there is sort of more broad knowledge and interest in learning rather than just you know, I've oh, got to have that Daytona or got to have that Nautilus or something. You know, there's actually more of a desire to delve deeper and into, yeah, as you were saying, more interesting pieces, whether they're indie pieces or, you know, even more interesting pieces from more mainstream brands as well. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think we punch Mm. above our weight, which is is great. And and that's why I think one of the risks I see in, you know, the big shows dying is that there is, you know, if you're a small independent, whether you're an Oxen Junior or, doxer even you know you almost sort of need a central kind of spot where you knew the eyes of the world or the eyes of the collectors were on you where i think you know if you if mm. you take a big sh- you know if you take a big uh big show away some of those easy to get lost um but hopefully yeah. as we're saying things like when you got when time and time became a doxer uh you know representative in australia and you had the ceo came for one of the events and i got to meet, meet him. like fantastic guy re, re a reignited kind of my interest and passion in the brand i ended up buying a piece in part because the guy was so passionate i got to meet the ceo and kind of you know get that vibe of authenticity from from the person actually doing that so hopefully that's where i think that those events are really important to get exposure out yeah to the to the community because 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 i think you're right the interest and the passion and the knowledge in the in the aussie community base quite broad and quite deep. So yeah.
2: Yeah. Well I think as well, like the big shows were always a double edged sword. Like, you know, it it, it's the one time in the year where, you know, more kind of mainstream newsy places would would write about watches. But at the same time, every publication is gonna write several articles about the latest Rolex release.
1: And that potentially
2: doesn't give enough oxygen to you know, one of the several thousand other smaller brands um, that are there as well. So I think in terms of the their capacity to get get kind of more awareness or, or get the spotlight shone on them, um, I think they'll definitely have to be more more proactive in terms of their own outreach and and kind of engaging in their own communities um, and kind of growing, growing their own communities. I think a brand like mm. um, Corona is, is fantastic. Um, I was chatting to a, one of my colleagues about, uh, about them the other day, just, you know, you know, re- relatively young in the scheme of things, but already selling out in, in minutes, the same as me, yeah. for example, um, yep. you know, Yeah. a tiny brand that in terms of it's either, you know, volume turnover or financial turnover would be you know almost not you know not not to be disrespectful but almost uh you know one of one of the smallest brands potentially but because of their you know very effective and very thoughtful engagement with the with the watch community um yeah they are incredibly popular they are selling out every watch that they make um some of their watches are selling at premiums on the secondhand market like i think if if smaller brands um yeah if if smaller brands are kind of missing missing the big show then i think there there's on the flip side another opportunity where they're not going to be drowned out by the bigger brands um and they just need to engage with their communities in in the ways that the that a number of brands are doing at the moment
1: if the industry figures out we we still need conferences or we still need big get-togethers it'll happen yeah um i think it's just a big shift and everything's kind of everywhere at the moment so yeah when everything set, like settles down and people get on their feet again and go they realize okay we we need this for our brand or the industry does need you know a, an effective trade show or something to sort of spark interest or bring people together to the one spot, it'll happen. Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's um yeah, there's a lot of unbelievably intelligent people who work in the watch industry. Um I I I don't think that they're wringing their hands wondering what what they're gonna do. I think (laughs) I think it'll be okay.
0: Beautiful. So what's sort of next for you? You know, what are you working on now? Anything you can tell us about? Anything exciting you can share? Any scoops Um, we can you know?
2: Well I'm not sure I can offer any exciting world exclusives. Um, I think in terms of in terms of time and tides, obviously, where we're trying to put out uh, as much kind of quality content as we can, um, we're going to continue to do that. I think where we've obviously launched our marketplace recently, um, have you know a, a few brands on there, so that potentially going to be um, going to be a space to watch. But yeah, I think. For me, it's it's going to be a bit more of the same. I'm I'm really looking forward to lockdown being over. I'm, I bet, frankly, pretty sick of uh, pretty sick of being stuck in the house, as I'm sure both of you guys are. Um, <laughs> just a but, little, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, just to kind of be able to to you know go out and, and get a drink with somebody, or go out and have a yeah, ha- ha- actually host a watch event. Um, you know engage with uh, engage with everybody with everybody around instead of just uh, just just online so yeah I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that and then um, yeah we'll, we'll we'll see what else happens
0: brilliant no that sounds like a plan it'd be nice as a you know it'd be nice to get out of house and attend a watch event sometime in the future you sort of don't realize how much you miss the other weird nerdy watch people When you don't get to see them (laughs) i know
2: (laughs) yeah it's um i never never missed so many long awkward silences before (laughs) yeah we're just just people
0: (laughs) glancing down at your wrist and you sort of want to say no no my eyes are up here just you know know, get me a beer first before you you know before you try to undress my wrist with your eyes (laughs) <laughs>
2: yeah exactly
0: uh well as we start to wrap up i think um one of the things we do here is um you know some instagram recommendations kind of both for us and for our listeners to sort of expand their horizons and discover some cool things um so i don't know if you got anyone prepared or maybe actually we might put vinnie on the spot we might make Vinny go first
1: no worries happy to jump in um First appearance on your show, I can't, can't be lulling around not knowing what's going on. So, I can wear Rolex, but I, I can't, you know, take the piss.
0: We'll talk about that afterwards.
1: <laughs> First and last appearance. <laughs> um, <laughs> this week's recommendation I've got is dr.vc8. So, that's dr.vc8. Um, lots of vintage Vacherons. I know a lot of people are aware that I have a penchant for Vacheron, Um and there's lots of Art Deco uh, tank pieces, just stuff that you probably don't see from them right now. But, yeah, I mean, wrist shots and all, um, it's it's beautiful to see all these Art Deco vintage pieces out and about. So that's doctor.vc8. I'll check them out.
0: That's very, very cool. That's awesome. That's a great one. Uh, what about you, Nick? Anyone special? I've got two,
2: actually. Um, the first one is uh, a couple of guys that played... Uh, a pretty a not insignificant role in kind of not only my love for vintage Seiko, but also just kind of my addiction to to watches. Um, and that's an account called <laughs> Two Vintage Seikos. It's two underscore vintage underscore Seikos. And basically they, it's something that I haven't actually seen uh, done very often before or actually ever before. Um, they basically auction off vintage Seikos, um, maybe two or three uh, a day. Um, each auction lasts twenty-four hours, I think, um, and then people just people just bid in the comments. Oh, okay, um, but they've sold I don't know how many thousand Seikos, but a lot. Um, and yeah, it's basically my kind of it was my gateway drug to you know, buy, buying and selling a lot of uh, vintage Seikos and just kind of starting to, to get an understanding of just how ra- deep the rabbit hole goes, you know, just within Seiko, never mind, you know, w- watches more generally. Um, and then the second one I was going to recommend was a, an account which you might have come across as well, uh, Horology and Chien. So it's Horology underscore a N C I E N N E.
0: Yes, yes, very cool.
2: Um, they, it's a father and son run account, mm. um, and they specific they they kind of focus on Patek, but it's possibly the if not the best, definitely one of the best resources for kind of learning about rare and unusual watches from Patek or Rolex or whatever it might be. Um, you know, everything from, you know, they've they've got a a world time wall clock that, you know, normally we're in Patek boutiques. So they've got one in their house. They had to have as somebody you do. Come and, <laughs> yeah, as you do. that yeah, They had to have somebody in um, come and install it. Um, but, yeah, just a, a side of the watch world that you don't always get kind of access to just, just reading reading articles
0: yeah yeah no they're yeah their posts are fantastic i've been following them for a while yeah really really cool stuff um really really thoughtful stuff as well no that's awesome that's really really good what about you roman uh the person i've got is sf watch dude so i presume is san francisco but it's sf watch dude um and you know i try to stay on theme and knowing Nick was coming, I knew I had to get somebody with some Grand Seiko. So there's Grand Seiko there. There's also Ming, because we talked about Ming. There's also Jean. And then Pateks and some some crazy crazy MBNFS as well, mm. and it's one of those accounts where there's like the collection's insane, and this person's only got about 450 followers or something. I I don't know how you know how these people just fly under the radar for so long, but yeah, some absolutely insane.
1: Those are the best. Those are the best accounts where you just find all these unbelievable watches, and they've got like a couple hundred. Followers, and you're like, well,
0: how is that possible? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, but yeah, so really, really cool stuff. So, and uh, yeah, and as I said, I, I knew I, I had a I had a feeling Nick was going to talk Seiko or, or wear a Grand Seiko, so I thought I'd better get one of those with Grand Seiko in the front. That's very
2: kind, thank you, Roman. <laughs>
0: Ah, uh, look, you know, I cater for all types, you know, as long as you didn't, as long as you don't wear a roller. <laughs> but look, no, thank you. Oh, look, thanks for joining us today, Nick. I think it's been a really interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed that sort of hearing that voice from within the industry, but with a soul, if I may say that. So that's really, really cool. Thanks for joining us today.
2: No, thank you. It's um, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you, Vinny, as well. Of course,
1: so good to have you on.
0: Brilliant. Oh, well, thank, thanks very much, Nick. Um, I'll just do our last little bit that we usually do. You know, Fifth Wrist, we set it up as a platform by enthusiasts and for enthusiasts. For all our listeners, if you want to join us, contribute, write reviews, or even come on the podcast, as long as you don't wear Rolex, uh, please get in touch. <laughs> uh, follow Fifth Wrist on Facebook and Instagram on, or on our website at fifthwrist.com. Uh, like and subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review. It helps to spread the word. And we do read the reviews, only the positive ones. Negative ones we don't, but that's fine. Do what you want. <laughs> uh, follow me. I'm at TimesRomanAU. Uh, Vinny's at TellYourTime. And our guest, Nick, is at nick.kenyon. Thanks for joining us again. And as we always say, stay on time. Risk is by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at and join the movement.